Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the covenant ritual at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. And we are joined today by Dr. Daniel Block. Daniel Block is Gunther H. Nodler, Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Wheaton College. And he is the author of a whole slew of books on Deuteronomy or topics related to Deuteronomy. So I'm just going to go through them quickly here. So Covenant, the foundation of God's grand plan of redemption. Deuteronomy, which is with the Lexham Context Commentary. The Triumph of Grace, Literary and Theological Studies in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomic Themes. Deuteronomy for the NIV Application Commentary. The Gospel According to Moses, Theological and ethical reflections on the book of Deuteronomy and how I love your Torah, O Lord, studies in the book of Deuteronomy. I didn't miss any, did I? Well, the one that's in process right now, it's it's the gospel according to Moses, a commentary on chapters 1 to 11, volume 1, chapters 12 to 23, volume 2, and uh, 24 to 34, volume 3. Uh, wow. That's a lot on Deuteronomy. <laughs> it is a lot. So we have one of the world's experts on Deuteronomy here to finish off our Deuteronomy series, and we're really grateful to have Dan with us. Now, in addition to that, Dan was on the translation team for the New Living Translation for the Pentateuch, which includes Deuteronomy. And I just spent a great weekend with Dan and the rest of the New Living Translation team uh, in Chicago working through the text as we're thinking about potentially updating and revising it in the future. So I had an opportunity just to see in person Dan's love for translation and getting things right. Uh, and so we hope that he can help us get our understanding of this text right in our conversation today. I hope so. Now, Dan's not only an expert on Deuteronomy, uh, he's also written a commentary on Ezekiel. And I've actually interacted with his work on Ezekiel when I've done my work on the scrolls and the use of the spirit mm-hmm. uh, language and terminology in the Qumran uh, Thanksgiving Psalms. Yep. Um, so, Dan, I mean, that's kind of an interesting uh, two books to take up in terms of your interest, uh, Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. Uh, what kind of uh, instigated that, I guess, union of Deuteronomy and Ezekiel in your own interest? Well, um, I, I, I was interested in Deuteronomy before I was interested in Ezekiel. But while I was doing my dissertation in Liverpool un, under the mentorship of an Assyriologist, Uh, it dawned on me that Ezekiel is the only one of the prophets who performed his entire ministry in a foreign context. Mm -hmm. And already then I was becoming curious about how that context colors the book. Mm -hmm. And then after I had defended my, my dissertation, it was on a broader topic, it wasn't on Ezekiel, it was on a broader topic, then out of the blue, I got a call. Would I do the Nicot uh, commentary uh, on on uh, Ezekiel? So that thrust me into a world that I was already thinking about. Mm. And 15 years later, it was out <laughs> out there. In the process of that, uh, 
my primary interest in the Pentateuch and Deuteronomy particularly, uh, I was, it dawned on me, I should have done Deuteronomy first and then Ezekiel, <laughs> though there are scholars out there who say that um, Deuteronomy hasn't influenced Ezekiel at all. Well, I had a doctoral student uh, who I think proved him wrong. <laughs> he, did, he did his dissertation on Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. Deuteronomy is where my heart has been probably since I began teaching at an undergraduate level in a school just outside of Winnipeg up in Canada. And uh, as part of the first year course that student had to take on inductive Bible study, I required them to read aloud the scriptures, whole portions of them. And in that process, I myself read the book of Deuteronomy aloud. As you read through the book, you find at every turn, Moses is reminding the Israelites. He is not standing before them as a legislator. The style and tone and genre of the literature is not legislation. Even chapters 12 to 26, I will argue, it is law in the service of theology. And this is rhetorical communication at its finest. He stands before the people as their pastor, delivering his farewell addresses. And his primary concern is to keep the people on track with Yahweh once he's gone. So that his legacy, it's really the Lord's legacy in through him, his legacy is a scripture in which we continue to hear the voice of God uh, as Moses communicated it. So when we think about Deuteronomy as this rhetorical performance, uh, we have you on to think about the conclusion, the grand conclusion of this rhetorical performance in Deuteronomy 31 to 34, which, you know, like many pastors today, ends with a poem, right? The poem, <laughs> three points in a poem, right? Yes. And, but then unlike a lot of sermons also ends with a narration of the preacher's death. Not as many sermons <laughs> end with that. So could you just walk us through these last four chapters briefly before we dig into them in more detail? What do we see in these four chapters? How do they hold together? I had a student at one point who did his dissertation on death narratives in scripture. Hmm. We have dissertations and studies on birth narratives, on call narratives, all sorts of other things, but it dawned on me uh, as I was working through this material that nobody's ever done anything on death narratives. Hmm. And what we have in those last chapters, in chapter uh, 31, it starts out with Moses telling the people, I know I'm not crossing the Jordan, I'm, I, I can't go across with you. And so what he does then, he, he begins, the whole book is about putting the house in order, which is what people do before they die. And he puts it in order in three ways. One. He reaffirms the commission of Joshua as his successor, 
not in all the roles, but as leader of the people. He'll take you across and he'll lead you in the process of claiming the promise that God has given in the land. So he does that. Second, he writes down the Torah. Uh, chapter uh, 31 verses 9 to 13 Moses wrote down all the words of this Torah and he handed it to the elders and the priests and then he tells them to read it every seven years at the festival of uh, Sukkoth uh, uh, booths from the very beginning it is cast as canonical text to be used in worship hmm. To remind the people of God's grace in their redemption and in the gift of land and his blessing of the people. All that we are and have comes from him. And, and so the document itself is that. And they put it beside the Ark of the, uh, Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Not inside. That's where the tablets go. That's the icon of the covenant. But this is the exposition of covenant relationship so that they can retrieve it. Nobody ever saw the, the tablets. They were not on public display. Only God saw them as the guarantor. But this uh, is to be used uh, in worship regularly so that the people will continue to hear the voice of God. That's the second thing he did. And the third thing he did, Moses, you're about to die. So uh, write this song, which is really interesting. The real successor to, to Moses is not Joshua, the man. But it is a song which I interpret as Israel's national anthem. Uh, because he's, he tells them, memorize it and teach it to the people, and they are to uh, learn it throughout and, 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 and sing it and recite it throughout their days. The whole book is like a Russian church service. I've preached at a Russian service in which I was the, la the fourth preacher of the morning. <laughs> what we have here is four sermons, one uh, to four, five to 11, 12 to 26, plus 28, and then 29 to 34. Four sermons. Then you have the closing hymn. That's chapter 32, the national anthem. And then you have the benediction, chapter 33, the blessing of all the tribes, and then you have the pastor walking off the scene, and uh, the story's over. Not only his personal story, but the story uh, of Israel prior to crossing the Jordan. We are now entering a new episode. So it functions, these last four chapters are deliberately set up as a death narrative from beginning to end, and it has all of those features in it, preparing his family, like Jacob did in, at the end of his life, what like Jesus does in the upper room. 
with his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world and all the rest that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he, he's getting them ready to take over when he's gone. And that's precisely what Moses is doing in this book. Tell us what for you is the most difficult thing or the most uh, peculiar passage, odd thing that you've encountered and tried to interpret in these last chapters of Deuteronomy. Well, I really struggle with, right after the song, you have a little narrative interlude between the song and the benediction, verses 44 to 51, uh, I think it answers some questions from earlier in the book. But he has just de- taught the people this song, and the Lord says, go up the mountain, and he commands him to die. It's the only place in Scripture where I can find anybody commanding anybody to die. <laughs> but he says, go up and die. And then he reminds him, you're not crossing the Jordan. Uh, and then he, he gives the reason for it, and it takes us back to Numbers chapter uh, 20, where Moses struck the rock mm-hmm. instead of speaking to it. I ask myself, Mo- God, is it such a big deal? <laughs> the guy has done so much for your agenda. <laughs> I mean, earlier... In chapter 9, you had another prayer. There are two prayers in Deuteronomy. One is a personal, private prayer, and God says no. And I say, this is such a biggie. Why can't I just cross the Jordan? Uh, But God says no. The other one was a real significance. There Moses offered to give his life that God spare the people self-sacrificially well here there is no self-sacrifice in his prayer uh, earlier but in any case God doesn't answer this what seems to be a little problem relatively well he answers it with a no but the one the Israelites really did deserve to be wiped out because of the violation of the first covenant a principle, no other gods, and they just signed on to it, and here they violated that. That one, God, in response to Moses' intercession, God backed off. So, anyhow, that, 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 that's a, it's a theological problem, it's a text-critical problem as well, and uh, I wrestle with that one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it gets at the first question we had for you, which is right at the beginning of our section, which is in 31 verse 2, you get this mention of Moses not being able to enter the land. So Moses, he turns to the people and says to them, I'm now 120 years 
old, I'm no longer able to get about, and the Lord has told me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. So why does he not get to enter? Well, I guess 33 answers it in chapter 33, verse 51. Um, God is addressing both Moses and Aaron. 3251. Sorry, Moses and Aaron, and says, because both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin by failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites. Could you just elaborate briefly on what is what is God referring to here in terms of failing to maintain my holiness among the Israelites as the reason for Moses not being able to enter the promised land? I mean, they, they struck a rock, right? right like, yeah. I mean, what's the, how is this failing to maintain God's holiness? What's the deal? <laughs> well, you can tell from the narrative and numbers that Moses is curt with, mm-hmm. with the people. And in, uh, finally, instead of uh, using the staff as a shepherd's tool, uh, I mean, we it doesn't say it clearly, but the fact that publicly the Lord told him to talk to the rock and publicly he misrepresented God. This person who is the embodiment of the divine message, (laughs) more more than any other prophet, I mean, he's lived it all his life. Uh, At that moment, I mean, in God's mind, Moses, you have explicitly gone your own, you've done your own thing in this one. The amazing thing is water came, but the problem, the theological problem remained. Moses, uh, as one called to promote fear and reverence for God and to embody his holiness, he himself embodied the opposite publicly. and. And that's a serious issue. And and that one God would never let go. And of course, we struggle with that. What? Is that such a big deal? And and the answer is yes. God's holiness cannot be compromised. And just because you're a leader doesn't mean you get to do it without with, with without consequence. Yeah. So that consequence of Moses' death sets up a major issue that's addressed in chapter 31, which is who's going to succeed Moses Mm -hmm. after his death. And so we get Joshua. Why is it important that we get this new leader mentioned here in Deuteronomy before Deuteronomy is over? And then why is Joshua chosen to be that leader? Well, again, we never have any explicit reason for that choice. But if you go back to the narratives, if that leader who leads them into the promised land is to be one who experienced the exodus originally, we have two candidates. We have Caleb, who represents Judah, and that could make real sense because Judah becomes the royal line. Mm -hmm. But Caleb is not an ethnic Judahite. 
Caleb ben Jephunneh the Kenizzite. You know, he's a convert who earlier had exhibited even greater faith than all the native Israelites. Uh, an amazing story in and of itself. He has a different spirit. He, he, in my mind, he would have been a great candidate. So what we do here is we take an outsider who is the true Israelite and have him as the leader. The interesting thing is when they cross the Jordan and they apportion the land, Caleb, the non-Israelite, gets Hebron, the burial place of the patriarchs. That's what Caleb gets. It's an awesome reward. The adopted son is uh, is is the real bearer of the passport. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Joshua, the other side of Joshua, he's an Ephraimite, isn't he? And already in both the benediction of Jacob uh, in Genesis 49 and in Moses' blessing already, uh, Joseph, they're highlighted. And this becomes, I think, a, 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 it, it, it's honoring Joseph. Hmm who served Yahweh so well in Egypt by preserving the people. And I think that's part of it, though the text never does actually explain it. He, he, he had, of course, uh, been Moses' general when they were fighting the Amalekites earlier on. Yep. So he had that, and he was Moses' lieutenant all along. So, uh, I mean, that is a natural. Now, in chapter 31, verses 16 through 22, the Lord tells Moses how the people are going to break the covenant and worship other gods. I'll, I'll read a little bit, beginning in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, Soon you will lie down with your ancestors. Then this people will begin to prostitute themselves to the foreign gods in their midst, the gods of the land into which they are going. They will forsake me, breaking my covenant that I have made with them. My anger will be kindled against them in that day. I'll forsake them and hide my face from them. They'll become easy prey, and many terrible troubles will come upon them. Okay, so, I mean, we can imagine that Moses would be <laughs> not a little bit frustrated yes. uh, with hearing God tell uh, him this, because it almost seems like, you know, throughout the book, he's been making pains to tell the people to continue to be faithful to the Lord, to keep God's covenant and the commandments, and now God says, oh, and they're all going to—they're going to screw it up anyways. They're not going to be faithful. Yeah. Uh, and it seems then, that now at the end of the chapter, that Moses himself expresses some of that frustration himself in verse twenty-nine. Yes. For I know well how rebellious and stubborn you are. If you already have been so rebellious toward the Lord while I am still alive among you, how much more after my death? So. You know, this is odd. I mean, it seems like why does the book have such a pessimistic outlook? And doesn't doesn't that kind of undo all the rhetoric that Moses has been spending so much energy expending throughout the book? On the one hand, he's positive about this generation. But he's also aware of the human disposition as we have you know, God's saying in the wake of the flood, I will never send a flood again, but we haven't actually solved the problem. The human heart, 
continues to be a problem. Now, uh, related to this, in the fourth address, in, in, in chapter 29, verse 4, and this is a trouble text, at least for theologians and, uh, and others. Um, you've seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, this is verse 2, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, the great daring acts that your own eyes saw, those great signs and miraculous wonders. Then verse 4, Yahweh has not given you a mind that understand, or eyes that see, or ears that hear, until today. Most people interpret that to say, in, in the Hebrew Bible times, in ancient Israel, they didn't have a mind to understand, or ears that hear, or eyes that see. They didn't have it. Yeah. But if you read the Hebrew, and you put the until today where it belongs, you get a sense of the significance of this covenantal moment. Hmm. At this point, in fact, he confirms this in chapter 30, where he says, uh, uh, chapter 30, uh, verse 11, Now this charge I am delivering to you today is not too hard for you, nor is it far away. It's not in heaven that someone should ask who will go up to heaven for us or uh, get it for us so we may listen to it and put it into practice. Neither is it beyond the sea that someone should ask who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so we may listen to it and observe it. Indeed, the word is extremely near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to put into practice. Through this process, Moses has delivered the word to them and put it on their hearts. To this day, I mean, the, he's talking here about the previous generation. They didn't get it. Now we have it. But then you get to chapter 31. I know this won't stick. <laughs> and, and if you read the book of Judges, they didn't. There arose a generation that knew not the Lord nor the things that the Lord had done for Israel. And as soon as this generation is gone, they went off track. And it happened so quickly that at the end of Judges in chapter 18, uh, Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses was the priest at this pagan site at Dan. That's how quickly they went off track, and that's how high, uh, what shall we say, the recidivism, the apostasy, yeah. went. So you mentioned uh, that the song then, which God commands Moses to sing in 3119, uh, actually, first he commands him, write this song, and teach it to the Israelites in 3119 and put it in their mouths in order that this song may be a witness for me 
against the Israelites, right? So the, the song, as you said, it serves as a kind of national anthem, but it's a rather accusing national anthem. And it, and it seems like the accusation really hinges on uh, verse 15 of the song. So the first part of the song is describing God's perfect works and the ways that he redeemed his people. But then verse 15 says, Jacob ate his fill. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, bloated, and gorged. He abandoned God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Now, does Deuteronomy have a particular moment in Israel's history in mind here in this transition point? Or is it talking more about a constant temptation for the people? I mean, there are parts of the description here because it's poetic. I mean, some yeah. of it sounds a little bit like the Golden Calf yeah. episode. Some of it sounds like the Judges cycle, where over and over again they go through this kind of process. And some of it sounds like the exile to come when this foreign nation will come and take them away. So does it have one of those events in mind? Or I think, I think this works at, at the personal level, at the family level, at the communal level, at the tribal level. And it works at the national level. And that's why I think it's operative all the time. So that the individual, even if the nation is staying on course, there are always individuals who can scoff at the rock of their salvation. On the other hand, it also reminds us that even though the nation goes off course, there are always individuals chapter 10 he'll talk people who are circumcised of heart they're not they're not victims of the national ethos so there will always be those who will enjoy the well-being of god but if 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 you look at, at if you want to find a historical moment i think the one that's most dramatic is the period of solomon mm. uh under David already, I mean, we are flourishing. I mean, all the, all the wealth of the world is flowing into Jerusalem. <laughs> and uh, once Solomon has finished David's project, he loses it. And, and the narrator of Kings has nothing good to say about him after, after about chapter 9. As soon as this project is finished, he goes off the rails too. And the, the wisest man in the world becomes the ultimate fool. So I think that's, that's the most dramatic one. Uh, we, we now could there's also, a... Oh, go ahead. We could also say, for instance, under Jeroboam II... The northern kingdom was flourishing, but they were worshiping. They were worshiping the gods, and it was just a matter of decades. And 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 the Assyrians are there, and it's over. And so it was fulfilled there. Now there's a very difficult textual and theological issue that kind of impinges on the textual issue, right? <laughs> In uh, verses eight to nine of chapter thirty-two. So the NRSV says this, When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. 
the Lord's own portion was his people. Jacob is his allotted share. So this seems to acknowledge that uh, there are other gods and that uh, the other nations have been allotted to these other gods. Now, there is a, a difficult textual issue here because the Masoretic text reads, not according to the, uh, uh, to the gods, but according to the number of the sons of Israel. Right, and so there's a, there's a difficulty here, right? Some uh, translations like the JPS and the NIV follow that version. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the ESV splits the difference and translate this as according to the sons of God, which we do have an ancient, you know, Greek, uh, the Septuagint, which goes in that direction, the angels of God. Can you walk us through this textual issue and its theological significance? Should we be taking this as uh, the people, the there's an allotment according to the the gods, according to uh, the sons of Israel. What's going on here? Uh, well, I think that NRSV reading is quite misleading because none of the text says according to the Elohim. Yeah. Uh, it has, according to the sons of Israel, Masoretic text, according to the angels, the arithmetic of the angels. <laughs> and of course, that's an interpretation of, and even before we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, I say we, I wasn't there, but collectively, <laughs> even before we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, the RSV was already listening to the Septuagint and asking uh, and answering the question, who are these? And they interpreted angels back into Hebrew as B'nai Elohim. Now we know that in the Hebrew Bible, the members of God's heavenly court are all, are, are often called the B'nai. There was a day when the sons of God came before the Lord at the beginning of the book of Job. And we recognize that those are heavenly beings. They're residents of that sphere of existence. They're not earthlings. <laughs> and so, nor are they Rephaim, that is, residents of the netherworld. These are heavenly beings. Uh, but there's a distinction to be made between other gods and God. Ha Elohim, which is the equivalent of G-O-D with a capital G. There's only one of those. But the word Elohim, generically, here's where I think Michael Heiser is actually quite right. The word Elohim means resident of the heavenly realm. His their home is up there. They're otherworldly agents, beings. Uh, those would be called Usually, B'nai Elohim, once or twice in the Psalms, Elohim itself. But that's rare. If you render it gods in Hebrew or in English, you communicate to the contemporary readers rival divinities to Yahweh. 
And we can't go there. There are none. The problem with pagan religion is it elevates rival, not not rival, other residents, occupants of the heavenly realm to the status of deity so that Yahweh is dethroned. So when we go with other gods here, we we have uh, a problem. Uh, but I, the speculation about the Septuagint angels being the original reading actually gained force when we discovered two little fragments at Qumran that actually have at this point B'nai Elim. So that's the textual support, and I think I think the NRSV impulse here is right. Only I I wouldn't translate it. Uh, I wouldn't translate it gods simply. I would translate it uh, either either sons of God or, or members of the heavenly court. I'd certainly interpret it that way. That's how the NLT translates it. When you translate it in the NLT as members of the heavenly court, which is probably clearer to people, contemporary readers, who don't understand the ancient Near Eastern background. I think behind, underlying this is the notion that the whole population of the world needs to be administered by God and the agents of his providence are the sons of God, i.e. members of the heavenly court. And in this instance, it looks like he divided the population of the earth according to how many people there were in the heavenly court. And how many would that be? Well, we can only speculate, but the Targums and other places, there are references to 70. And it is very interesting that when you read the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, if you take out the aside comments, you know, circumstantial clauses, if you take that out, there are exactly 70 names. And uh, so we could, that may be an illustration of the mindset behind this. If you, if you, Translate that as sons of Israel, like Masoretic. What in the world does that mean? How many sons of Israel were there? Twelve? There are no allusions anywhere to the population of the, of the world being divided into twelve. There, there's nothing like this anywhere. So what exactly are these uh, divine beings doing? Okay, so you said they they administer God's providence. Can you flesh out in a, for an ancient Israelite reading this? What would they would they be executing God's justice? Would they be um, you know carrying out God's vengeance when nations go you know wild? <laughs> would they be uh, you know? moving around the stars and the and the moons and the you know the sun and that kind of thing the winds what exactly do you have in mind here well i i think the the prologue to the book of job was uh, gives us the best picture probably there was a day when the sons of god came before the lord and why were they there i think i mean all of this is a metaphor based on a earthly royal court I think what they're doing is they're giving account to their divine superior 
of what they observed happening on earth. You have an allusion to this in the book of Zechariah as well in terms of the horsemen. But they go back and forth. They're doing all sorts of things. I think they're distributing blessings on those who, uh, who are, uh, are, are faithful, authentically pious, and they're also meeting out judgment and whatever else. Well, let's move into chapter 33. And this is a series of blessings on the tribes of Israel. What rhetorical purpose does it serve here at the end of the book of Deuteronomy? Well, I, I, I think we started out by talking about the structure of the book. This is a church service. And at the end, as one says goodbye to one's family... We bless them. And I think this reinforces the notion with the people uh, that this is, in fact, Moses' swan song. It's over. He's leaving. But what does he do for them? And this is what's really amazing. The guy who was so angry with the people just a few days ago with this generation, when it wasn't this generation's fault. It was the previous generation's fault. But he was venting his anger in the first addresses. Now, the last words we hear from Moses are the blessing. And I imagine in this instance, I mean, some people will say I am, I'm too historicist and, and, and all of this. But I think the author, by the way he structured a book, he imagines us. Now, the Lord has said, go up the mountain and die. Moses is on the way up. And as he goes up, he turns around and he sees the whole camp of Israel before them, before him. And what happens is a, a series of fragments of, generically, at the beginning, uh, the narrator calls them the blessings of Moses. Uh, they don't actually sound much like blessing. Actually, to me, they sound more like wishful thinking. <laughs> they are less prophetic predictive in tone and style than Jacob's were in Genesis 49. And so that generically they are slightly different, but the narrator says this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death, he said. And then, of course, he starts with this magnificent uh, exordium, Yahweh came from Sinai, O you who loves the people, all his holy ones were in your step, so they followed in your steps, receiving orders. And then a third person reference to himself, this is a problematic, I don't know where this comes from, how Moses, when Moses charged us with the Torah as the possession uh, for, uh, for the assembly of Jacob. Thus he became king in Jeshurun when all the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. This is the moment of the covenant renewal in the presence of God, and that's when they became the people of God. Uh, but it ends with one of my favorite texts 
in all of Scripture. It is amazing. The Coda, verse 26. There is none like El, O Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your age on the clouds in his majesty. The God of time immemorial is your dwelling place, and underneath are the eternal arms. He drives out the enemy before you and shouts, Annihilate! So Israel dwells securely. Jacob resides secluded in the land of grain and new wine, and even his skies drip with dew. How privileged you are! Hebrew has two words for blessing. Barakah, which Moses used at the beginning, and Ashrei, which he uses here. And in my mind, I mean, it's usually translated, you know, you know I, I think rather lightly as happy are. I think it's much weightier than that. It is a, a declaration of privilege. How privileged you are, Ashrei, and this is Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the council of the earth, but delights in the Torah of Yahweh. This is that, this is in Jesus' beatitudes as well. I think he's not, uh, he's, he is not working with the Baraka language there in Hebrew. He's working with the Ashrei language here. How privileged you are, O Israel, who is like you, a people rescued by Yahweh. He is the shield that aids you, the sword in whom you boast. Your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread on their backs. It's a magnificent framework. And I can imagine that at one point the, the exordium, the beginning, and the coda, the ending, were one piece. They fit together. But what's happened here is whoever put the book together inserted these fragments of blessing for each of the tribes. And they are just fragments. I mean, a couple of them get rather long blessing. Joseph gets a long blessing. And Levi gets a long blessing. We understand Levi, Moses is a Levite, and that it's the spiritual uh, responsibilities they have. Uh, but the rest are all just fragments. And mm -hmm. some of them, I mean, are they predictive or are they reflective of past events? Reuben, maybe. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his males be few. Well, you know the story of Reuben, and you know what Jacob said about Reuben, about being dispersed, Reuben and Simeon, uh, for, for their evil. But in any case, so in some instances you have that link, but in others, I mean, it's hard to figure out uh, what's going on here. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling, and, and, and this is just imaginative hermeneutics. <laughs> I have a feeling that each of these each of these blessings was put on a separate ostracon and left for the. I mean, I'm just imagining this for the tribe. Mm -hmm. These are Moses' last words to you. Treasure them; they are on separate ostraca, little fragments of pottery, perhaps, and put in a bag, a collection. We've got a collection of these blessings, and in the light of history. They were arranged. 
you know, also that Dan, when you see where Dan's portion is allotted in, Jer- in, in Joshua, Dan is allotted territory between Ephraim and Judah. So these are not arranged geographically according to the ideal, but the order in my mind already reflects later history. They're put together in in light of historical reality. Uh, when that was, I mean, I have a, a sense, my own sense is that it was early, probably during the time of David already, but in any case, that's another story. But these are, they're interesting because I think they really are prayers. Look at verse 11, for instance. O Lord Yahweh, bless his resources and accept the work of his hands. That's a prayer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have, uh, have that kind of flavor. Well, we come now to the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, and the end of the Pentateuch as a whole, right? And here we get the death of Moses. He goes to the top of Mount Nebo, and the Lord shows him the entire promised land, and then he dies and is buried in Moab, never to enter the land. As I mentioned, this is not just the end of Deuteronomy, it's the end of the Pentateuch as a whole. So, Dan, help us understand why conclude the book of Deuteronomy? with the death of Moses and his failure to enter the promised land. Even, you know, the book of the entire Pentateuch is concluded in this way. Why? Well, there are a couple of reasons why it is important. I think in terms of the biography of Moses ends here. And so it is quite appropriate that the narrator of the life of Moses end the whole story with an account of his death. That is the point of a death narrative. It ends that story. But this is a bigger story than Moses. The Pentateuch is not about Moses. He's just an agent. He's But in the narrator's mind, he's a really, really special agent. And despite God's refusal to let him enter the land, his ending is extraordinary. No one in history has ever had an ending like this. Now, Moses will reappear. He reappears in the New Testament at the Transfiguration, along with Elijah, who is also a prophet, but he never experienced death. I mean, the chariot whisked him away up into the heavens. The text actually says Moses died, but God buried him. Has anybody in history ever had a more royal, noble, honorific ending than that? Moses' relationship with God was more significant than Moses' relationship with the people. Usually it's the people who bury the deceased. Not in this case. God says, this is my project, and it is an amazing one. Of course, lots of myths and legends have gone up around what happened to Moses' body and all the rest of it. 
at the scriptural level, Moses is the one who gave us the authoritative interpretation of all that God was doing for Israel. I distinguish that from what happens in Exodus and Leviticus. In Exodus and Leviticus, you have the divinely revealed stipulations of the covenant, the Mishpatim and the Chukim. In Deuteronomy, we have Torah, which means teaching, the most significant verb in the book of what Moses has been doing is the ordinance and statutes that I have been teaching you. It's not that I've been legislating. And so what's happened in this book is Moses has offered instruction on how to apply the worldview represented by the covenant to the new situation on the other side of the Jordan. Hmm. That's the world that Moses is denied, but that's the new world that's about to... This is an epochal moment. I know in critical scholarship, Martin Nolte and others have argued that Deuteronomy is the introduction to the Deuteronomistic history. Uh, I, I don't think that actually works. The, the Deuteronomistic history is very mosaic in tone and perspective, uh, but that's because the authors of those books have been meditating day and night in the Torah of Deuteronomy. This is the instruction, the Torah of, of Moses. Why do we need to end it here? In so many ways, this is the turning of Israel's history to a new phase. Pre-land, pre well, we've had the patriarchal age. That's the age of promise. We've had this exodus age and deliverance of the land. That's the fulfillment of the land promise. But now the rest of it will be, well, how did we carry out God's mandate? Which is summarized in Deuteronomy 26, verse 19. See, I have set you high above the nations for praise, honor, and no, for a name, fame, uh, honor, and glory. Uh, that was the mission. Unfortunately, they forgot it, but they were there to be uh, paradigms before the world, trophies of grace, showing to the world what divine grace can do, and in that sense being paradigmatic for what God's vision is for us. Yeah, thank you so much, Dan. You know, with chapter 34, we not only come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, but also our journey through Deuteronomy this season. And you've brought us back to where we started in the introduction with Brent Strawn, where we talked about why we wanted to spend this time in Deuteronomy, because there's a sense in which, as, as Strawn says, that Deuteronomy is foundational for our understanding of the Old Testament as a whole. And then, of course, the Old Testament is foundational for the New Testament as a whole. So, I mean, there, you could make an argument that Deuteronomy, and I imagine you might be tempted to make this argument, Dan, Deuteronomy is the most important book in the Bible because it's so foundational in that <laughs> regard. 
Uh, so there's just one more thing, though, since we finished this journey, but there is one more question that we have for you that we'd like to ask all of our guests, which is for a blurb. Uh, so blurbs are... You know, that this genre that biblical scholars seem to have perfected in, uh, and we hope that they've read the whole book before they re- write these blurbs, but <laughs> <laughs> the genre that they seem to have perfected in terms of praising a work uh, for some way that it might be helpful to readers. So do you have a blurb, and it doesn't have to be of a book, it could be of anything that you've encountered recently that you think other people might enjoy. At the instigation of one of my nieces, I have... 80 nieces and nephews, but at the instigation of one, um, over Christmas, she she asked, uh, she was reading Amy Jill Levine's Light of the World. Amy Jill, uh, Jill Levine is a Jewish scholar at Vanderbilt University, and she writes Advent meditations here from a Jewish perspective. I find these magnificent. They're wonderful. They lead us into, well, her focus is on how Jewish this story is, which we, Goyim, don't get. Well, thank you, Dan, for taking the time to walk us through these last chapters of Deuteronomy. And thanks to our listeners who have also uh, journeyed with us through not just the last chapters, but those of you who have journeyed through the entire series as a whole. And if you've enjoyed the series and the episode, um, I mean, I don't know that we can get God to bury you, you know, but uh, but I don't know. And I don't know how meritorious it would be for you to give us a five star rating. But perhaps... well, there is there is there are ways that they could bless us. Right. You know, it's appropriate true. to have a blessing true. at the end in a yeah. way that you could bless us as as those who have journeyed with you through this um, through this book uh, would be to tell someone else about the podcast, mm-hmm. you know, forward it to them. Let them know uh, you can give a rating on Apple Podcasts, which is helpful as well for getting the word out about mm-hmm. the show. But uh, in any way, I mean, there you can also, if you go to our website, there are ways to donate to, to support us as well. For all those things, we would be most grateful. And blessed. And it would be a blessing to us. <laughs> but now, our blessing upon you. Thank you for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelda, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.